Light beer, dark money. Agree on something. Politics, culture, and the intersection of faith, freedom, and free enterprise. And now, here are your hosts, Light Beer, Chris Clements, and Dark Money, Sean Noble. Welcome back to another episode of Light Beer, Dark Money. I'm Sean Noble. And I'm Chris Clements. And today we are blessed to have a bright mind, uh, one of the leaders in qualitative research, uh, Rich Tao is with us, and, and he's been involved in what's called the Swing Voter Project. Rich, how long have you been doing that now? Just under three years. Okay, that's what I thought. Because I remember when we saw each other last in person, uh, man, more than two years, it was before COVID. Uh, yep. you, were, you gave a presentation at a conference that I was at that was just fascinating. It's only gotten more interesting. You partner with Axios, uh, who does... Uh, who carries your work. Um, but t- tell us how this came about and, you know, what is it you're looking for and how is it helpful for those of us who are trying to divine the tea leaves of politics in America? Sure. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, the Swing Voter Project is a project that uh, my firm started in partnership with Axios in March of 2019. The purpose then was to understand the minds of a very narrow band of voters. Before the election, it was Obama to Trump voters, people who voted Obama in 12 and jumped to Trump in 16. We focused them in person, mostly in the upper Midwest and swing counties uh, from March of 2019 through March of 2020. When the pandemic set in, uh, we moved to all virtual and now we do these focus groups on Zoom. So before the election, it was, as I said, Obama to Trump voters. After the election, we flipped direction and went to interviewing each month Trump to Biden voters. And these respondents are people uh, now who live in the 10 most competitive 2020 swing states. So we pull one or two people from places like where you are, Arizona, Georgia, Florida, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Nevada, North Carolina. I think I got all of them. Mm. So, <laughs> Sounds like uh, all of them. <laughs> yeah, it was either nine or ten, but it's, it's the ten most competitive swing states. And Texas, uh, if I left that out. Um, so that's, uh, that's what we do. We conduct uh, two sessions each month, back-to-back. Uh, usually it's the first or second Tuesday of each month, and each session is 90 minutes. The respondents are recruited through a partner, a company of ours called Schlesinger. They're one of the largest focus group recruiting companies in the country. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they uh, reach out via email, via social media to get people to take an, a short online survey. And basically, they ask, who would you vote for in 2016? Who would you vote for in 2020? The respondents have no idea what the purpose of the survey is. So there's no motivated reason to choose wrongly or to lie. Mm. Uh, so people will say, if they say, both Democratic candidates, they get knocked out. They say both Republican candidates they, or Trump both times, they get knocked out. Um, but if they say uh, first uh, Trump and then Biden, uh, then, um, then we recruit them. Mm. Not only do we recruit them, we also double check to the degree you can double check. So someone on my team then interviews them before they actually get into the focus group and ask them, well, why did you vote for Trump in 2016? Why did you vote for Biden in 2020? And if they can't give a plausible answer, we bounce them. Mm. So we have a, a double check on this. Obviously, it's impossible to know. No one was in the voting booth with them right. uh, when they voted. So we can't know absolutely for sure. But most of these people chose those two candidates in those two elections for specific reasons. And those are generally the reasons we hear over and over again. So if you come up with something where it sounds like you're making it up, Matt on my team uh, sends you packing. Yeah. So. <laughs> Good for Matt. What uh, what has been the biggest surprise? And we'll, we'll be... During this, the course of this episode, we'll be uh, showing some clips of your latest group um, or groups, two groups. What, what's been the biggest surprise in the last few months as you've, as you've talked to people who voted for Trump in 16 but Biden in 2020 um, as we're now you know, headed into Biden's second year? 
Oh, there are so many surprises. You know, I, I've moderated probably more than 600 focus groups in my 20-year career, 21-year career doing this. Um, and the great thing about this job is you never stop being surprised. So I think what struck me in the last focus groups, we did those on January 11th, we had 13 respondents across two sessions, and all 13 of them said to me that basically they're ready to, to treat the pandemic like an endemic. And they think that the Biden administration should do the same thing. So the degree to which that the fight in, in public and in political circles is about, you know, is Biden doing enough? Is the administration doing enough? Congress doing enough to fight the pandemic? That, 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 that argument has basically been settled. Um, the people in these groups basically recognize the people who are going to get vaccinated are going to get vaccinated. The people who are not going to get vaccinated are, are going to remain unvaccinated. We've got 63% roughly who've been vaccinated in the United States. That number is not going to shift. And we have to treat the pandemic and our response to the pandemic in a way that means that we have to live with it. Yeah. We have to live with this stuff in some sort of background fashion. We have to find a way to get on with our lives and move on. Um, and I was really surprised that all 13 had said that. I had no dissension whatsoever. Now, you get 13 pretty independent-minded people from a variety of different states and regions. And they were uniform. That that level of uniformity surprised me. That um, is interesting because I because boy, you really wouldn't sense that <clears throat> watching the mainstream media. It's very no, very you, divided. You and very, but you can feel it. You know, you 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 see it just in in general discussion. I think with with either side of the aisle, it seems people are tired. People are tired of 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 what they think has been missed opportunities and, or the mishandling of, of, of public policy with this regard. They're, they're tired. I mean, they're tired of mass or tired of being told you need to do this or you need to do this. There's everyone's all over the board. And in one of your focus groups, that was, that was, you know, um, said pretty plainly that people are tired of, of just the different information they get on a day-to-day -day basis, depending on what, whichever way the political winds are blowing. Yeah, that, that, that's it. And, and so, you know, um, it, it, to me, it's a fascinating phenomenon because the way the, the, the fight has become so bifurcated, people have taken sides, they've gone to their own camps, it's become so politicized. Um, you know, most of these swing voters actually think Trump's more responsible for politicizing it than Biden is. And, you know, we can look at who to blame and why and so forth. But the end of result at the end of the day is that people are very realistic about how they're living their lives. When I asked, by the way, as an aside, earlier in each session, what's the number one issue that's on your minds these, day, these days? It's something that's in, in the public discourse that, that, that matters the most to you. Um, month after month, COVID is the number one issue. It's COVID either the state of, the, of how many people have it, where the numbers are going up and down, the mandates, the vaccines, it's schools. It's, it's all related. It's, it's not the economy as much as people might think. That's, that is an important issue to people. It seems to be uh, superseded each month by, by, by the pandemic and by COVID. So it's, it's, it's pretty substantive, and it's still very much on the minds of these people I'm talking to every single month. And, you know, what what is their understanding or have you asked any specific questions about their understanding of natural immunity and the, and how that plays in because i we i saw a statistic i think yesterday i mean now they're they're saying maybe at least 70% to 75% of of the us population has had covid and and that natural immunity and the public policy is not being being brought into the discussion at all, and it leads to even more confusion. Yeah, I mean, I'd say, mo so most of my respondents are vaccinated. I sure. would say each month I get a couple who are not, but most of them are. And the people who are not vaccinated are not vaccinated for various reasons, including sort of what you suggest, Chris, which is that they've already had the illness, they don't think they need to be vaccinated. So, um, but I, ha I haven't spent a lot of time probing on the concept of the of most of America having had it, although maybe that does get into, uh, you know, why they think about taking the next step and looking at it as an endemic as opposed yeah. to a pandemic? It's a good question. Maybe I'll ask it uh, this coming Tuesday in my next sessions. Look at that. Um, You're uh, driving the debate, Chris. Well, <laughs> there's a lead editorial in the Wall Street Journal, I think to, it was yesterday, on this very subject by um, um, Marty McClary from, uh, from John Hopkins, basically saying we, we have not done enough to recognize uh, natural immunity. People have lost their jobs who have had COVID, 
because they didn't want to take the you know take the shot and 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 try to argue that hey I I have natural immunity I I I'm I'm going to be fine I'm not a big carrier and by the way all all the data that's now coming out of the CDC is saying that you are two to four times less likely to be a transmitter or or get the disease again if you have natural immunity so there's there's all all these studies are lags obviously. But I think it's an important point. Well, and it's, you know. Because people have lost their jobs, lost their livelihoods because they don't want to get vaccinated. You can't have a vaccine mandate and ignore natural immunity. I mean, I just, just, from a scientific standpoint, that just doesn't make any sense. So the endemic piece of it, I think, is really, really important because that comes from all these different data points coming in and people trying to educate themselves, but also comes from people just tired. They want to get on with their lives. Yeah, absolutely. What... um, so you you were watching these, I mean, you had these groups leading up to the 2020 election. You're obviously continuing them now. What, um, what, what's been the shift? I mean, what, what was it in your mind that, that had, because you talked to these people who voted for Trump in 16 and then for Biden in 2020, what were the drivers of why they switched? And what does it mean? I mean, is there anything you can, you know, divine or or point to as far as how things look going into the 2022 election even though it's a midterm it's not biden or trump yeah so it's it's a it's a mixed bag uh for for biden and trump honestly uh so for biden every month i ask a question which is um imagine there's a rematch between trump and biden and imagine that um, the election's tomorrow. Who would you vote for? And what you see is that um, nearly all of these Trump to Biden voters would stick with Biden. In the last four months, I've asked out of 48 people, 44 of them would stick with Biden. Wow. Now, that's, that's on the plus side. On the minus side, um, they don't love Biden. Uh, they don't love Biden at all. For him, he was um, he had one characteristic of, that was more important to them than anything else, which was he wasn't Trump. Right. And so to me, it, my favorite analogy, it's like comparing the fifth place team against the sixth place team. Mm. <laughs> right. It's like fifth place team is nominally better than the, than the sixth place team, but there's no enthusiasm. Um, the other thing I would say is that when I ask people the one emotion they feel the most when they see Biden on TV or on their devices, the response I get, well, the response I got back in January, February, March of last year was, I feel relief, I feel calm, um, I feel renewed pride, and that has now shifted to, and that was almost everybody in the groups. To now it becomes like 50 or 60% saying, I'm frustrated, um, I'm confused when I see him. Um, and then some other people just saying positive things that they still like him and that they, you know, he, makes, he makes them feel you know, confident and assured. So you could see the slide in public opinion among these voters just by tracking the monthly comments that people have made when I asked that question. What's the one emotion you feel the most when you see Biden on TV or on your device? That's a great question. What um, <clears throat> do you get? Do you get any responses with people saying they feel sad or that they're worried about his cognitive ability? Is that popped up at all, or is that just more just the inner inside the bubble chattering? Oh, that that no that that is an ongoing theme that runs through this this work, which is a decided concern. Um, or awareness that Biden is not as sharp as they would like him to be. Um, and it morphs into a conservative talking point that you hear endlessly in conservative media that um, other people are running the administration that Biden is not. Mm. You know, it's being run by people in the cabinet. It's being run by Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. No, but, but Biden himself, Biden, that Biden himself is not in charge. Uh, that that and because he can't be because he can, he doesn't he's not up to the job. That's sort of the implication of these comments that I hear over and over again. And the most interesting one, honestly, is and I find this always so striking, um, where people will say in the focus group, you know, I heard Biden say, "I really shouldn't be saying this," but and 
That's a kind, and, and so let's just spend a second deconstructing uh, that, right? Uh, That's the kind of thing that people say in ordinary conversation all the time, right? They kind of know in their heart they should keep it to themselves, but they'll sort of say, oh, I really shouldn't be saying this, but blah, 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 and they'd say something. When Biden says it, 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 it has a nefarious overtone to some people, and they seem to think, well, he says he shouldn't be saying it. Maybe, you know, he was told he can't say it. Someone who's really in charge told him that. And he's kind of like forgetting that he can't say it. And he's sort of pushing it out there. <laughs> um, and I've described this to people. And, and, it, it's, you know, and it's just it, it's such a fascinating thing. I, and again, keep in mind, guys, I have to keep a poker face throughout these sessions. <laughs> right. Right. You know, and I have heard some pretty bizarre stuff over the last three years. I can only um, imagine. Yeah, what what is know, the most I, bizarre thing you've heard? Oh, the most bizarre. Oh, Chris, I'm so glad you asked that question. Well, I mean, you led me uh, right into it, so I just I took the bait. Uh, well, well, so the best one, and um, if you want, I can send you the audio for this, but I'll just describe it to you. Yeah. I had, a, I had a woman back in March or April last year when I asked the question. We were talking during the focus group, and, she, and remember, this is a Trump. These are all Trump to Biden groups. So most of these people tolerate Biden. And really have given up on Trump, right? That's kind mm-hmm. of the mindset, okay. right? So she says to me, you know, she starts criticizing Biden about this and Biden about that. And she's saying these really positive things about Trump. So I said to her, like, why did you vote for Biden? And she said, I couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't take it anymore with the criticisms of Trump. It was driving me nuts. <laughs> and I, I said, so you voted for Biden as an act of mercy for President Trump? And she said, yes. <laughs> so even though Trump wanted to be reelected, she couldn't stand what was happening to him so much that she decided to throw him out of office. That is fascinating. I wonder how many people voted that way or that was the she, motivation. Uh, That's fascinating. She, she was the only one, Sean. Well, she, she could have, but she couldn't have been. She's representative of some number, right? Uh, I don't. It's like, that's got to be a pretty small number. Pretty people. small number. But what do you say? There. I mean, back off that sentiment. Just sentiment. Just a little bit. People were were tired of the drama, right? Yeah. I'm sure you get that in your feedback. People were tired of the drama, the mean tweets. All the all, every day was like, what's he going to do today? What's he going to say today? And I would imagine there was just this fatigue amongst some voters that you know. Even though Donald Trump would never say, "Oh, I shouldn't be saying this," he didn't. He wouldn't care. You know, he said whatever came to mind, which some might argue was a good thing. But, but, but I would imagine there was just this fatigue amongst folks who voted for him, gave him a chance, probably agreed with most of the policies per se, but just was tired of the man. Yeah, there, there was, that, that was that very clear. I mean, the, the sense of relief that people felt once Trump was out of office was palpable in January, February, and March last year in particular. What? Yes, they, 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 I even had one woman say to me, I don't have to check my phone you know, all day and all night to make sure the world isn't going to blow up. Yeah. So well, and I got be- to believe that there were, there were people who felt very vindicated in their decision to vote for Biden over Trump after January 6th. Oh, yeah. There was no doubt in my mind that, that that was something that they felt very strongly about. January 6th did not go over well with this crowd uh, at, at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, even so, I'll tell you just quickly, I, I asked a couple of months ago, I had a really in-depth conversation with them about the January 6th committee. And these folks are not paying close attention at all. And that's another important theme of this. These folks, they know their own lives inside and out, but in terms of what's going on in Washington, paying nominal attention so for example they're not crazy they like of, we are yeah, right yeah, yeah not at all yeah yeah you gotta be very careful with that and so the the most important thing to take away from this is that while they wanted the committee to do its work they thought people who didn't provide information or were unwilling to testify should go to jail that, that on the one side of the ledger you had that they felt very seriously that this committee had to be taken seriously and has because they don't want to see these mistakes repeated to your point about how how it affected them but on the flip side, they couldn't name a single member of the committee. None of them. <laughs> right. Liz Cheney didn't come up. Kinziger didn't come up. Benny Thompson didn't come up. They had no clue who served on the committee. So you have to sort of weigh the, you know, how seriously is this stuff taken 
when they can't tell you even a single person on the committee and someone like Liz Cheney, who's obviously considered like a media celebrity now, right? Given all the attention she's gotten on both sides, um, that they, they had no idea who she was. Well, and it, it, it goes to a, 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 a kind of an article of faith to some degree that, that I have held um, that was, that I learned from Stephen Shattuck, John Shattuck's father, who wrote the book, how to win an election that, in a close election, the people who actually decide the election are the ones who are the least informed and least engaged, that they are the indifference, that they kind of, at the last minute, decide, oh, I got to go yeah. vote. And, you know, they just, they they don't vote. They're not informed voters in the sense that they're not like truly undecided in the sense that they're weighing the, you know, these back and forth. It sounds to me like a lot of the participants in your groups probably fit that mold that they, they just don't pay that close attention and they kind of go on a whim. Yeah, so it's a, the, the engagement levels vary on issue to issue. So if I ask about inflation, for example, they can rattle off everything where the price has gone up. Yeah. But if I ask them what policies should be imposed to try to fix it, they have nothing to say. No. So that's an important distinction there in terms of what they know and don't know. I'm, I'm reminded often, Sean, of, of my high school civics teacher, Joe Katz. Uh, may he rest in peace. And Joe Katz used to joke about people having what he called an exchange of ignorances. <laughs> when they, they would argue with each other and didn't know what the hell they were talking about. And he was a marvelous guy. I could regale you with stories about him. I won't do that. Um, but I remember that phrase uh, vividly because it reminds me of what I get in so many of these focus groups is that people are just talking about stuff where they really don't know. And, you know, I'm, I know stuff pretty well, obviously, and I, I try not to embarrass people in the focus groups. I don't want to make them feel stupid. But there are times where I'll say, by a show of fingers, instead of a show of hands, a show of fingers, how many of you know about X? And no hands go up. And I'll say, really? Now, but I don't want to harbor and make them feel bad because I still want them to talk. I want to shut them down. So you have to be very careful in displaying this. But I have a, a sizzle reel of people not knowing the answers to things that the three of us know the answers to. Um, like, did you hear that the House passed a bill Friday night to, to uh, uh, rebuild America's infrastructure? I asked this. The House voted, had voted on a Friday night. I asked about it the following Tuesday night. Not a single person in one of the groups had even, had even heard that Congress had passed this bill. That's you know, a tr- trillion plus dollars, right? It's, it's, it's considered a pretty big deal for many people in politics. Um, so for me, and, and that gets also, you were asking me before we started the program about this issue of, uh, of the integrity of, of polling data. Let me give you sort of my two cents on this, if it's okay. Yeah, please yeah. do, please. So, because so, it's been so a huge po- issue the last three or four elections. Yeah. yeah, so here's the thing. There are two ways to look at this. One way is you ask people, what do you think about issue X? Are you for it or against it? Position A or position B? For it or against it? That's, that's, that's the quantitative approach to a lot of these issues. And sometimes when I look at polls, I just start laughing because I say to myself, they're asking people's opinions without knowing whether they know the issue even is on their radar screen. Mm. So the other approach, which I take in the focus groups is, have you heard about such and such? What have you heard? What is the basis upon which you are forming an opinion? So Tuesday night coming up, I have a perfect example. I'm going to ask about um, uh, Breyer's retirement. But I'm going to ask, how many of you have heard about this? How many of you have heard that Biden made a promise to nominate an African-American woman? What I want to know is not whether they think nominating an African-American woman is a good thing or a bad thing. I'll get to that at some point. But I wonder whether they even heard that news. Or am I the first person even mentioning it to them? So you, you've got the thing that you see endlessly in the media, and you see it in liberal media, you see it in conservative media, is how is event X happening today on you know, whatever date, late January, early February, going to affect the November elections? And the fact of the matter is, it isn't. Most yeah. 98% of the stuff that happens during the year has no resonance whatsoever. In the moment, it seems like a big deal to us. But if I asked you about something that happened you know, in January of 2020 and how it would affect the November election in, in 2020, you, it would seem preposterous. Yeah. 
Why? Because we had a pandemic, we had riots. We, I mean, there was a huge amount of stuff that intervened. Yeah. So, so we got to be so careful about what we ask and how we think it's going to affect the, the discourse. And what I basically uncover, I think, at the end of the day, is that most things that happen in Washington have no bearing whatsoever in the minds of the people I'm talking to. They barely are a blip. Yeah. Well, and that that's a it's such a great point because I was I was thinking about this Breyer. Well, we haven't heard from him officially yet. No, that's been the at most... least I checked. But but the White House leaked that he was going to retire, um, and th- there was immediate chatter among the chattering class about oh this is going to be helpful to Democrats. They're going to show that they're motivating their base by him nominating an African American woman. I mean, depending on how long this takes, unless this thing drags out until October, I think you're right. It's going to have almost no impact on the election, yeah. right? No, it's not. And, and, and it's, how many people have you met who are going to vote based upon the selection of a Supreme Court nominee? I mean, it's ridiculous. It's so far removed uh, temporarily from when it's going to matter in October and early, no- and early November that it's, it's, it's preposterous. Um, I, I, what will matter... What could matter more is if, you know, Roe v. Wade gets overturned. Right. And then suddenly a lot of people on both sides get animated for different reasons. But that, that's, a, that's a landmark decision. It's something that people feel very passionate about, obviously, on both sides of it. And that perhaps that could bring people out one way or another if, if the candidates and the parties decide that they want to make this a huge issue and they see some, some electoral advantages to be gained by it. Right. But the, the nomination of a Supreme – these people can't even name a single person who's on the Supreme Court, for God's sakes. Right. To, to say that, that Breyer, who they probably wouldn't even recognize if they walked past him on the street, his retirement is going to – it's not going to matter. I, I, can, I can virtually guarantee it. But, but you're listening to the chattering classes, you're going to think, oh, my goodness, this is such a huge opportunity. It get, enables Biden to change the conversation. Yeah, the conversation for yesterday and today and maybe tomorrow. And then when he finally comes out, he'll, he'll drag it out, uh, you know, the naming of someone and he'll parade people in and out of the Oval Office and he'll show that he's taking the process seriously and so forth. Yeah, it'll get media hits here and there. But at the end of the day, huh, Seriously, with my swing voters, I'd be shocked if, if the, the selection makes any difference. Yeah. The thing I'm dying to know, though, is will, they, will these swing voters in some ways be frustrated or unhappy with Biden because he specifically made a promise to nominate a woman of color? That's the thing, particularly an African-American woman. Is that going to be something where I'm going to get pushback? I'm very curious to see whether that is going to happen. Because in the past, when I've asked these kinds of questions, the response is, no, the president should nominate someone who he thinks is the best person. Right. And did Biden perhaps get the process wrong? In other words, say I'm going to nominate the best person, happen to nominate an African-American woman, show her credentials and say, this is the best person I could find. As opposed to saying specifically, I'm picking a person based upon race and gender, and then have all the possible uh, candidates fit into that categorization, and then just pick from that much smaller pool. And that's where I'm curious how people are going to respond to that. And then I'm I'm anticipating some people will push back. So then I'm, I'm... I'm trust none of my uh, folks group respondents are listening to this podcast. <laughs> probably not. My follow-up question is going to be, in 1980, three weeks before the election, Ronald Reagan made a promise that he was going to nominate the first woman Supreme Court justice. He actually made a, he had a huge event around it. He made a big deal of it. It got a lot of play at the time. I want to know, well, if you thought it was a mistake for Biden to to make this promise was a mistake in 1980 for Reagan to make that promise. That's a great follow-up question. Yeah. Oh yeah, man, and, I'm going to be really looking forward to seeing your results on this one. <laughs> I'm dying to ask this. I want to see how, and is it, was it about race or is it about gender? Or is it some combination of the two? What, what works and what doesn't for people? Cause I remember I, I'm, you know, I'm, fi- I'm be 57 in a few weeks. So I remember when this happened, I was in high school at the time. And well, and it was a big it, deal. It was a big deal for us here in Arizona because it was Sandra Day O'Connor an Arizona Absolute. judge. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Well, yeah once, well, that, but but that, that's when he named her. I'm talking about when he announced right, that he was right. going to choose a woman in the abstract. That's the thing I'm particularly curious about. When she, when she was nominated, Sean, everybody was like, she's great, she's qualified, she's brilliant. Absolutely. There was no issue with her per se. It was with the promise to say, I'm not going to choose a guy, I'm going to choose a woman. Right. 
And a lot of people pushed back on Reagan at the time, saying, no, he should, again, choose the best person, whether it's male or female. Um, I thought it was a very shrewd decision on his part, and, and, and it actually uh, accrued to his benefit over the long term. But it was not an easy call at that time. And I think I'm curious to see whether Biden is going to suffer some negative feedback from these swing voters having made that promise and now ostensibly going to fulfill it. Right. Wow. What a fascinating look at this. So you have you have a couple groups coming up, I guess, because we're now headed into February, right? Yeah, February 1st. And then the one after is going to be fun. I'm doing groups the night after the State of the Union. State oh. of the Union is on March 1st. We're doing groups on the night of March 2nd. At least that's when they're scheduled. I'm going to predict that only two or three of your groups, people of the members of your groups, will have even watched the State of the Union. It's, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's a, yeah, you're probably right. Um, usually, usually I'll get one or two who watched all or most of it, and I'll get a couple more who saw news reports about it, and the rest of them have no clue what was in it. Now, yeah, and, been, those, and those are the people that decide our elections. Yeah, that's I mean, it, that's it right. really, I mean, you made the point, and I think it needs to be, be said again, that it's those last two weeks of an election cycle in terms of what is the news of the day that will grip people to vote one way or the other, depending on what their self-interest. And, yeah. and these, these are the people who, they don't wake up and read the Wall Street Journal. They don't wake up and read Politico. They don't wake up and clutch their national review to their heart like we do. <laughs> I mean, it's, it have since we were 14 or right. whatever, you know, and, or, or their mother Jones for that matter. They, they, they're, they're living their lives out. So things like inflation, gas prices, you know. Crime. Yeah, crime is a huge issue going into this election and will continue to be. And and just the perception of, of the president and how he's handling it is going to be, is it going to continue? It, and, and the competency issue, I think, I don't know if you've asked that, but I mean, how, how, how do people even look at Biden as, as in terms of his competency? Because if you look at just the general polling, since the withdrawal from Afghanistan, that's what began the long slide to where people don't believe that he's actually competent. Yeah, I, I think something very meaningful happened, Chris, to him in August, um, which I think can't be overstated. He had two bad things happen to him essentially simultaneously. He had Afghanistan and he had Delta, mm-hmm. the Delta variant. And think about what we were like as a country in the spring. And maybe less so with you guys in Arizona, where it's warmer and people are outdoors more. Where I am in the Northeast, it was a very long winter yeah. and a very lonely winter for a lot of people who couldn't get outside, couldn't see friends, couldn't see family in the winter of 2020 to 21. So suddenly you get people getting vaccinated, huge numbers getting vaccinated, April, May, June, a lot of optimism, Memorial Day weekend, summer's going to be great. Biden comes out and says, basically, we beat the virus. July 4th is going to be a freedom weekend. And then we have a month or so of, of openness, like Prague Spring, right? right? And then suddenly, July, Delta comes in. August, we have that. And things suddenly, that promise of things being open permanently has been reversed. Yeah. And so it was, wait a second. I thought this was going to, we were going to be done with this thing. And then it wasn't. And then Afghanistan happened. And by the way, with all my, I had 11 respondents in my focus group after Afghanistan. Ten of them knew that we had pulled out of Afghanistan. One hadn't heard the news. Wow. Ten had heard it. Of those ten, all ten th- were in favor of the withdrawal, and all of them thought it was handled badly. Yeah. They were uniform in their view. So that did not help him on the heels of Delta coming in and closing down their lives. But again, go back to what I said before. Delta, uh, the, the COVID is the overwhelming issue for these people every month when I interview them. And I think understanding that it, Afghanistan is now in the rearview mirror. Right. It's not something that matters to most of these voters when I ask them about it. But sure as hell, COVID comes up every single month. Well, and we'll show a clip of that right here. By a show of fingers... How many of you would say you're concerned about the condition of democracy in America? Show fingers. How many of you are concerned about the condition of democracy in America? Four of you. Um, Kelsey, why? I think mainly because of the changing of the policies regarding um, vaccinations and who is exempt, who isn't exempt, just 
the whole question and issue regarding that, um, how it changes from county or state to state and everything. So that. So help me understand this, Kelsey. Why does that affect your view of the condition of democracy in America? I can understand why you're concerned about that issue as an issue, but why does it go to the condition of democracy in America? I think I kind of just interpret it as um, people's freedom of choice. Um, and in some circumstances, people don't have that. It's more of a mandate. Show of fingers, who's concerned about the condition of democracy in America? I got five of you, okay. Melissa, what are you concerned about? I have never in all my life been so concerned about the truth, uh, whether or not the, the politicians are speaking the truth, whether or not it's there's a reason behind um, their actions. My biggest thing is, is all the politicians telling us the truth because we're starting to see it, whether it's Republican, Democrat, independent, we have the, we all, we're having the same cycle of no one wants to be accountable for what we're asking them for. Just, there's a lot of corruption, um, like donors and stuff, like who backs everyone. And I didn't like how the primaries were run in 2016. They're stacking the deck a little bit and there's just some shady practices happening. I would just say up until Trump got into office, I always thought maybe politicians fudged a little bit, but not just blatantly in our face where you're just like going, what, he said that? Uh, there's a few reasons. First off, uh, we have a party who is currently saying that no matter what the votes are and no matter how many times in court it's found to not be the case, and no matter how many times we do recounts, and waste the insane amount of mind, uh, time, money, and personnel that no matter who wins the election, it was fraudulent. I saw the uh, saw the rebel flag get further into our capital than it ever has before since the Civil War. I'd say new voter suppression rules that are being implemented across many of our states. So how will COVID, I mean, so two crystal ball questions, I guess. Um, how will COVID play out? And maybe it's impossible to know because I'm asking the question thinking, how would I answer that? I have no idea. Um, but also, if you were to, because you are a very smart person who's been in this business for a long time and you're talking to the people who actually sway things back and forth, how do you view the, the upcoming midterms and, and where do you think things stand as far as control of the House and the Senate and, you know, that kind of thing? I mean, honestly, you know, when I, I try to ask these questions in the focus group, I get blank stares. Yeah, it's not it's, even on the my, radar, right? There's yeah, it's not it's not on their radar screen. It's it's all you know, sort of speculation, you know. And I get asked by people, you know, the, the Axios folks. I get by friends in D.C. who work at associations, trade associations, yeah. who ask me these kinds of questions. And every time I ask the respondents, and this is not just with Trump to Biden voters, who's the Obama to Trump voters, the same thing, or even any group of of voters who don't spend their lives thinking about this stuff. There is there's there's a, there's a huge amount of 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 tactical strategic thinking applied to voters who I have not yet encountered in my life doing this, having interviewed on how many thousands of people. The idea that, well, okay, I'm unhappy with the Biden on this, so I'm going to take my negative views about Biden and I'm going to apply them to the local congressional race and I'm going to penalize my local Democrat because Biden screwed up and vote for a Republican. I mean, I don't think people think that way. I think what, yeah. what's likelier is that they're just not happy with the overall direction of the country. They're not happy with the direction of the pandemic and sort of the national mood is the kind of thing that directs people one way or the other. Mm -hmm. That's what t tends to be, I think, the, the larger impetus for people voting the way they do. And, and over and over again, these voters will tell me, I'm not voting the party, I'm not voting the ideology, I'm voting the person. Who's going to do a better job representing me? They're looking at it on an individual basis, not an ideological basis. So you got to be so careful with these projection type of, of questions, you know, and you see, you know, the generic ballot, who's going to vote more for R's, vote for D's, you know, I mean, the, the districts are so ridiculously gerrymandered yeah. by both parties, Yep. To the point where it almost is impossible to tell how all of this is going to play out, particularly after we, we had all the redistricting happen in the last year. Mm -hmm. So this is anyone's guess as to the way it's going to play out. And I would say, though, it would be great, obviously, for, for Biden if people feel better out about things because their lives have gone more back to normal and because the pandemic has receded. 
if if October feels like June of last year, Biden's in much better shape than if he fe- than if it feels like January of last year or December of last year, when we're feeling the full brunt of of, of large numbers of 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 sickness and death. So that that's the way I would look at it. To me, I think that the swing voters are going to go the way the pandemic goes in large part. Um, but I, but I wouldn't. But I also, I would say other things like inflation do matter. Yeah. Um, and other things like uh, crime. I'm going to be asking about crime actually next week. I, I, I really want to spend more time looking at it. I'll tell you just as a quick anecdote. I've had three different women in three different focus groups over three different months just by complete coincidence when I've been out talking about you know, what issues matter to you and that kind of thing. We've all talked about how bad the crime rate is in suburban Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Of all places, because I typically have one or two Georgians in each of these groups and that seems to be something really on the minds of these particular women. I think most of them are moms um, and the crime and the crime getting out of the city and coming into the suburbs. That has been a really major issue. And that I think if that, you know, if the crime is happening in inner city and most of these respondents are not inner city people, that, that, that it matters, but it doesn't affect their lives daily for the most part. When it start, starts affecting their local communities, that's when you start seeing the political implications of it. Um, and it's a big, and it's a big, big concern that I think Democrats are only beginning to wake up to the size and scope of the problem they face here. Yeah, that's a, a great point. I mean, I think it goes to the very core of what you're talking about. That if pandemic matters, inflation matters, crime matters, because these are things that people experience in their daily lives. Yeah, exactly. And so, if crime is on the uptick in suburban areas, well, which yeah. You know, and especially and, with the influence of suburban voters and, and, and suburban women in the last several elections. And yeah. you would think that, you know, that we would understand that, <laughs> you know, both parties <laughs> would understand that. That, that these these are these are your crucial voters. And if crime and inflation, the pocketbook issues, so to speak, um, are, are influencing the electorate, then we need to do something about it and do it quick or else you're not yeah. going to win the next election. Yeah, exactly. Rich, what? Um, how do you see the the future of of your your business, qualitative research in particular, but also how it how it juxtaposes with quantitative research? And and you know, are pollsters ever going to get it right, or is it just it's going to get come down to you know you talking to a handful of people each month that's going to have a better sense of where things are going than these big polls that or just snapshots of asking people questions that they may not even know the answer to, and they just make stuff up. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, now, Sean, that's a great question. I, the first thing I would say is I think the, the, the quantitative people, the pollsters, they get a lot of crap, I think, uh, unnecessarily. And what I mean by that is that when you have a very, very close election and the margins are really tight, it's very hard to call that exactly right. I mean, it, it just, it, it is, right? You're not calling every person in America. Um, you're getting a, a representative sample. You don't necessarily know whether that sample is exactly reflective of who's going to vote. And you don't know whether you were right in your looking at the, the, the sample of people you contacted and how much it matches the electorate until after the election is over. So it's very, very hard to get that right. So you could be off by three percentage points, which is a tiny mistake, quote unquote mistake, but clearly that could determine whether X won or Y won the election. Right. So uh, you got to be very careful, I think, in being hyper, hyper attentive to how wrong the polls are. They're generally very, very good, but by being, but being very good, but not perfect, it could be meaning that you picked the wrong person who won the election. And that's where it becomes ugly to me. Uh, the more, the more interesting part of this is the qualitative side. So the quantitative people ask how many, and I ask why. Why do you think that? What do you know about this? And I think the most valuable way you get a, an accurate snapshot of political opinion is by marrying qual and quant. Hmm. To look at the people in the sample, see how many of them come up with something, and then talk to them and say, okay, you said that you thought that Biden's doing a, a crummy job or Trump did a crummy job. Why? Like, what's the, what's the behind it? How does that affect your decision making? When you look at these two people against each other, be it Trump versus Biden or uh, any candidate versus any other candidate, how do you make up your mind? What factors are going into it? And I think that understanding the nuance, which is what I try to do, 
it gives a lot of color to what otherwise becomes guessing. I cannot begin to tell you how many times I've shown clients and other audiences polling data and they say, oh, it came 63% believe this. That's because of such and such. They impose their own view of why that 63% came up with that, that, that opinion as opposed to asking those people. Right. Why do you have that opinion? Right. It's, it's, so I think so much of it is not the fault of the pollsters, although I can understand the concerns about precision. I get that there, there are valid criticisms out there. But I think so much of it is the problem of the people looking at the data and trying to drive or derive, I should say, too many things from that data. You can, there's only so much you can learn by looking at a top line or a cross tab. And it'll tell you information about where there is potentially there's more energy behind a certain point of view or less of a, a passion there. But until you talk to people, you don't know really what's driving it. And I think understanding what's driving it is so critically important. And I'll tell you just one other quick aside. The reason why I, I started the Swing Voter Project, and by the way, swingvoterproject.com has all the videos from all the focus groups we've done, going back to the first ones. Um, the reason why we, I started this was I was frustrated after the 2016 election that so many people were shocked by the outcome of the election. Mm-hmm. You could, now, you can understand why people were ecstatic or they were despondent. I get that. And my feeling, though, is that going into 2020, no one should be shocked by the outcome. It should be within the realm of the possible to know, based upon these swing voters, which way the electorate was going. And what I discovered in the, in the run-up to the election was roughly three-quarters of the Obama to Trump voters were sticking with Trump, and about a quarter were bailing on him. And for me, the question was, if a quarter bail on Trump, can he still win the election? And the answer turned out to be no. It was very, very close, as you know, in your state and some others. Um, but it turned out that given the number of, of, of Obama-Trump voters who were giving up on Trump, Although roughly a quarter of them, it was still just enough of him to have uh, 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 enough uh, uh, erosion of support that he ended up losing that election. Right. And so for me, I think, you know, talking to these people gives you a sense of how they look at it. You know, actually, I'll tell you one of the questions I'm going to be asking on Tuesday. I haven't asked before. I, 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 I got, and I should have been asking this, and I didn't, which was I mentioned before, 44 out of 48 of these folks would take Biden over Trump. I'm going to ask a follow-up question. If it's Biden against Pence, where do you go? Mm. Is, there, is it all about opposing Trump or is it about opposing Republicans generally? And I'm curious to see where there is a, a drop-off there and why there's a drop-off. Because I'm curious to see what, 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 whether Biden's – whether the luckiest thing that could happen to Biden if he runs for re-election is if he gets to run against Trump again. And if it's against uh, – Pence, who's a known quantity with these folks, they, at least they've heard of him, they can compare it. If I ask about DeSantis, they'll be like, I'm not sure I know who the governor of Florida is. Right. But, uh, so I, wanted, I want to understand That's that going to be mindset. a very interesting question. I think, I, think, I think you'll have a bunch of people that go with Pence, would be my guess. Yeah, I mean... Because I think it I mean, was certainly if Trump if, really if drove people away. If they're looking through things also through the filter of uh, January 6th, and if they appreciate what Pence did that day which a lot of us do, um, that would be a, a fantastic, a really fascinating question. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm curious to see if they know anything about what Pence did that day. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just thinking well, the same thing. Um, <laughs> really yeah. I digress. <laughs> I, I got ahead of myself. You know, but, but we've talked about another issue here, and that is how, how many of the folks that you've interviewed, do, Sean has a, a theory that, that one of the other reasons why was not really a theory. You've actually quanti- you've actually measured it. One of the reasons why Trump lost Arizona was you had some folks who didn't vote for Biden or Trump, mm-hmm. just left it blank. Do you have, do you encounter some of that in your in your focus groups? Um, was- I don't really because specifically my response had to have voted for Trump and okay, then specifically right. voted for Biden. So, but have I come across people who do things like that? Yeah. Um, they can't make up their mind. They want to leave it to someone else. There, there is a there's a there is a flavor of uh, voter, yeah, who doesn't want to have to deal with the guilt of voting for a failed president, or having his or her fingerprints on a decision they'll later regret. It's not most people. I mean, most people who feel that way, you know, Chris, don't vote at all. You yeah. know, they just they they condemn the system as being corrupt and they stay away from the polls entirely. It's a very narrow band of people who will 
vote for all the other offices, but leave the presidential slot empty because they just can't make up their minds. Right. It, it does exist. Don't get me wrong. But I just, oh, I, just don't know. Yeah, we, well, in Arizona, I, I know some big. people a, who've done that. Well, we, we, in Arizona, they vote just, the ticket, but they can't. They don't vote the top. So, you know, in, in 20, 2020, there were 60,000 ballots cast that the presidential line was blank, not even write in or anything, just really? out blank. Yep. It was second largest uh, number ever. The first largest was in 2016 when it was 90,000 ballots. Historically, before that, it was about 10,000 ballots in Arizona. Mm-hmm. So it was a pretty big jump in 2016. And, and my thought was if, he, if Trump could get some of those people back, because my assumption was that those were Republican-leaning voters who couldn't vote for Trump, but they wouldn't vote for Hillary. And he got some of them back because it went from 90 to 60, but clearly not enough because he lost the state by 11,000 yeah, votes. 11,000 votes. So. Yeah, I, I, that's, Sean, that's a shocking stat. I didn't realize it was that many people who did not vote just for that particular office. Um, yeah. That, that, yeah, that, that would make for a really interesting focus group. If you find yeah. any clients who, who want me to talk to those people, I would absolutely love to, I to will, spend time I understanding their thinking. Because uh, that, that could have some implication going forward, but that's a, that would be a great focus group. Rich, thank you very much for uh, taking the time. We will definitely have you back in a few months after you've had a few more of these groups, and we can see how this is evolving as we head into 2022. We can see what's going on with the Supreme Court vacancy and, and nomination process. You know, I'm assuming the Democrats will try to move quickly and get this done before the term is up. Um, but uh, Well, Justice Breyer is going to have to announce that he's actually <laughs> yeah, leaving right. I mean, well. and not have the White House do it. <laughs> Yeah, that's happening. Right. I, mean, today I mean, talk so. about a boomerang of of you know spiking the football before the the you know the game has even been played. Goodness yeah. gracious, it's not a good yeah. thing. That, that well, thank you, good. Rich. Where I remind people again where they can find your information and and see some of your work. Sure. So. Uh, my firm is called Engagus, E-N-G-A-G-I-O-U-S. We specialize in message testing and message refinement. And the Swing Voter Project we've been talking about is at swingvoterproject.com. Every month we put out a highlights reel somewhere between 9 and 15 minutes that show the best parts of the three hours of interviews. So you don't have to watch all of them. But if you want to watch all of it, all the clips from all the conversations are organized on the homepage based upon topic. So it's an easy way to find what you need. And all the previous months of work are all archived at swingvoterproject.com. That's fantastic. What a great Fascinating work. It's great work. It's essential work. So thanks so much for doing it. Thank you. And it's all free, by the way. No one's got to pay for any of this stuff. It's all up there. It's in the public domain. Watch as much of it as you want. Awesome. Well, I would encourage people to do that because it is fascinating to, to watch, especially for politicos like us. Rich, thanks again. Uh, and remember that we're a podcast based on faith, freedom, and the free enterprise. And uh, you can find us in all the social media network areas, all the tweets, all the, all tweets, the Twitters, all the, Twitters, all the LinkedIn's, LinkedIn's, yeah, and Instagram. Or and please like us wherever you listen to your podcast. There you go. Thanks, everybody. Have a good one. <laughs>